0: Good morning, morning. if you have a Bible you can open it to Hebrews chapter 10, Uh, we're continuing a sermon series in the book of Hebrews, Uh, typically if you're new to our church uh, we will walk through books of the Bible, just preach through um, biblical books and we have been in Hebrews for a while uh, but there's some uh, good stuff and we're going to continue that series this morning, but I want to start us out uh, sharing this with you, Uh, this is a picture of my wife Sarah uh, this is actually my favorite picture of my wife uh, For a lot of reasons one. I know good and well that I did very well for myself um, Because she is beautiful and I'm well, yeah um, And I have this picture I love looking at this picture I love the way the wind has pushed just a little bit of her hair into her face um, I love uh, just the background and uh, she does not love that I'm using this illustration. <laughs> but I have a, a copy of this picture here in my office. And uh, it hangs across from my desk so I can look at it uh, throughout the day and just kind of get reminded of how blessed that I am to have her. I also have a, pic- a copy of this picture in my, uh, on my computer. Uh, I don't know why it's my favorite picture. Uh, it just is. It just kind of captures quite a bit. But here's the thing about this. This picture doesn't tell a great story. It uh, doesn't have her laugh. Um, my wife has this incredible laugh when she can't like hold it in anymore, and I love that. Uh, this picture doesn't contain our inside jokes. Um, it's a picture. It's, it's not all of her. And, and I know you understand that, that a picture just represents something that it's not, but uh, it, it does show me her. But again, the picture is really uncomfortable to cuddle with. Uh, it doesn't do the trick. The picture is a horrible kisser. Um, And it it just doesn't capture everything about Sarah. It just shows me a picture of her, but it's missing the complete story. You see, in fact, I've made no promises to this picture. I'm not in a covenant relationship with a picture. I don't have any need to have meaningful conversations with this picture or to invest time into the relationship that I have with this picture. If the picture was destroyed, I wouldn't even cry. I would just go print another one. Uh, See, the picture is missing something, you know? It it, it captures a lot of my wife's beauty, uh, but there's so much of her beauty that it doesn't capture. I mean, there are so many layers to the love that I have for Sarah that are not captured in this picture. Um, Just time that we spend together, meaningful memories that we form together that you just can't get out of a picture. Because the picture points to something better, and that's her. If you've been tracking with us in the book of Hebrews, you know that that's the big idea of the entire book. See, the author of Hebrews is trying to get across to us over and over and over again, like, hey, the old way of doing things was a picture. I mean, it's just an image. It's just a picture of something better. It points to the better, and the better is now here. The the, the old system pointed to the Messiah, and he's here now. The old system pointed to Jesus, and Jesus is here now, and he reiterates this over and over again. That's why, if i would to be transparent with you, preaching Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 is brutally difficult because it is so unbelievably repetitive over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, 12 different times in these three chapters, the author will make reference to pictures or images or symbols. As a matter of fact, when we get to chapter 10 in verse 1, He's already done it 11 times. He's trying to get a message across to people. Now, here's the thing, like, and I want to be really honest and transparent with you. This message he's trying to get across to us is so vitally important for our maturity in Christ. I want to remind you of a couple things when it comes to preaching a message like this. Uh, two things. One, uh, we are a forgetful people. Amen? Wives, amen? Okay, of your husbands, right? Uh, and I had this professor that really meant a lot to me. Uh, as a matter of fact, he meant enough where I was willing to relocate from Florida to the middle of nowhere, Lincoln, Illinois, to study under him. And I got three years studying under this guy before he passed away. And he had this saying that I've shared from the stage here before, and he would say it all the time, ironically enough, it's the message of the statement itself, because he knew it needed to get really embedded into us. And he would say, repetition is the mother of wisdom, right? Because we constantly forget things. We constantly need to be reminded. That's what happens in Hebrews 10. It's a reminder for a lot of us, but a really important one. The other thing is this. The gathering of God's people is for this right here. I'm not preaching to the internet. I'm not preaching to some television. I'm I'm preaching right here. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. This is it right here. So same thing with second service and first service. Together as a church, Like this message is for us here today. And for us right here in this moment to learn from. And so that's where we're going to go in Hebrews 10. And that's the intent we've got with this approach to this chapter that I think will bring some new life to it. Let's take a look. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities. So it's a picture. Okay, All the law was was a picture. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered. And so when you translate the word never, like when you do original languages and you translate never out, guess what it means? Never. Okay? It never works. That's what he's saying. Offered year after year. It will never perfect the people that are participating in those sacrifices. And so this is a pretty elementary lesson, but you guys remember if you if you know your Bible, and if you don't, that's okay. But in the Old Testament, there's a guy named Moses. And he goes up on a mountain to meet with God. And when he comes off the mountain, he's got these two tablets with what written on them? The Ten Commandments. And these commandments that are written on these two tablets are pretty much Morality 101. They're just the basics of morality. Okay? Of things that we should do that lead us to live a more morally acceptable life in the eyes of God. Now, other laws were added. Hundreds of other laws were added. But here's the gist of it. When he came with these laws, uh, he told the people... Uh, this is the way that God wants us to live. And it's just basic stuff. Like, here's the thing I learned this week, jumping in. Most people, you'll see arguments around our country about the Ten Commandments, let's just use those, and people will argue all day long about where the Ten Commandments should or should not be placed, where they can and cannot be printed and handed out, all that, they argue about that. I've not read anyone who argues with their validity. I mean, I've never run into somebody who said, you know what I think is really good for your soul, Rob, for you to develop as a human being? You know what I think is great for you is if you just could be a consistent and continual liar. I mean, it's just going to lead you to a better life. You should lie all the time. Like anyone that'll, if you ever meet somebody like that, you're like, no, I don't trust you. I don't want to be around you at all. I've never ran into somebody who said, you know what's good, man? uh, Instead of investing time into your marriage and time with your spouse, why would you put all the energy into that when you can just go get your neighbors? No one says that. Like, it's like universally, like, that's ridiculous, right? And so these commandments, they're pretty basic. That doesn't make them easy, though, does it? As a matter of fact, every single person in the room would say, I have failed miserably at keeping the basics. Morality 101, I'm not good at even under, like, staying true to that. And so God looks at that, he says, okay, like, you can't even keep the basics right. You can't even do the simple things correctly, and so I need to institute this new system. And this new system is because I have to punish sin. If I'm going to be a just God, I have to punish sin. And so the new system I'm going to institute is the tabernacle system. And David kind of walked us through it last week. So the, the people would come and they'd say, okay, we can't even keep the basics right. We can't sin. They'd come and they'd see the priest and the pri- they would confess their sins to the priest. And the priest would say, yeah, that's right. That's really horrible. You shouldn't do that. Which is always a fun meeting, right? When you meet with somebody like, hey, here's what I did. And they're like, yeah, that's bad. Uh, and then they meet with the priest. And the priest like, okay, well... I've got all this sin too because I'm just a person. And so he goes and sacrifices an animal for his sins and the blood of that animal covered his sins. Then he gets an animal on behalf of the people and he would sacrifice that animal for the sins of the other people. Then he would tell the people, hey, just a reminder, don't do this anymore. See you next year when you do it again, right? And he would go and this is this system that they got caught in. Don't miss this. It's just as easy to get caught up in religious behaviorism in 2018 as it was back then. We look at that and we're like, yeah, that wasn't going to work. Because they get stuck in this system. And the more they sacrifice, the more they tried harder, the more effort they put into being a really good person, a godly person, the further their heart got from God. And it happened over and over again. Just this repeated system they got stuck in. And they never looked upstream and said, what's the real problem here? They just kept going through the motions. Think of it this way. Let's say at the back of your house you had a really beautiful deck. And maybe some of you do. That's great. But let's say beyond the deck there's a moving body of water, a river of some sort. And so one morning you come out and you sit on your back deck and you're having a cup of coffee and you look out and there's somebody struggling in the water. They're drowning. What are you going to do? You're not going to sit there and cheer. You put your coffee down you run out there. And you get in the water and you save them. You go through all this energy. You save this person. You pull them to shore. You're exhausted. You're soaking wet. They're exhausted. They're soaking wet. But you've saved them and it feels exhilarating. It feels good. So they're on their way and you're on your way. And you're like, that's awesome. Well, the next day, you get your cup of coffee. You go out on your back deck trying to reminisce about what had just happened the day before. Like, okay, this is good. And sure enough, there's another person struggling in the water you got to be kidding. This never happens twice. You put the coffee down, you go running out, you jump in the water, you save the person, you pull them to the shore. They're soaking wet, and they're exhausted. You're soaking wet, and you're even more exhausted because you your muscles were all sore from the week before. But you saved another life, and you're like, oh, that's, whew, they go on their way, you go on your way. Well, the third day, you hesitate. You're like, do I even want to go on the back deck? But you're like, I'm going to go three times. It's never going to happen, right? And so you open the door, you go out on the back deck, you're having your coffee, and sure enough, There's a third person in the water struggling. And day after day, eventually, what are you going to do? Eventually, you want to know, who's pushing these people in the water up the stream? Like, what in the world is going on? Because you can't keep up saving them like that. You just can't keep doing that on your own because eventually it'll kill you. This is the system they were stuck in every single time trying to account for our own sins every single time trying to make a better offering trying to behave better try to do better try to have over and over and over again look at how he describes it in verse two and if it would have worked it didn't work otherwise if it did work they would not they would have ceased to be offered like if they could actually make an offering that was acceptable and it really covered their sins and they wouldn't have to do offerings anymore since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins and so they would not have any issues with sins if their offering would have worked, but it didn't because every day they went out on the deck, there was another person in the water. Every single time, the sin just kept creeping back up and it kept becoming an issue for them. It's like they were taking a medicine that was supposed to heal them and it wasn't healing them, so they just continually kept taking the medicine. Like over and over and over again. Let me me give you another analogy. I've used this before at New Hope, but if, if you're new around here, this hopefully will be a helpful analogy. The old system, that we're talking about here, this continual offering for your sin and effort that you would have to put into living this godly life that wasn't working, I like to compare it to an MRI. Has anybody in the room ever had an MRI? Okay, they're miserable, right? You get put in this tube and you're told to sit still. And then when you move, they come on the speaker and they say, sit still. And then you say, what are you talking? And then don't talk back. And it's just horrible, right? They, they take this really in-depth picture of this injured part of your body they take you out of the machine they put the picture up on the screen what do they tell you They say hey you've torn this ligament or this your rotator cuff's inflamed or uh, this, this part of the bone is really injured and we couldn't have seen it without this picture and they say the picture's revealed that you have a really major problem they do not then say get back in the tube so we can fix it because they know like you know the MRI can reveal the problem, but it's useless in healing the problem. In the same way, the Old Testament, the law reveals to us consistently we've got this problem, but Hebrews 10 is telling us we can't keep going back to that law to solve it. It's not working, it's not solving the issue. He keeps going, verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. Every year we're reminded of it. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I'm a little confused here. He says, in the old system, I want you to sacrifice bulls and goats for the covering of your sins. But it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to cover your sins. That's what he's saying here. Well, he explains it in verse 5. He says, hey, it wasn't working. He goes on and he says this. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. But a body you have prepared for me in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. You have taken no pleasure. So what he goes on to say is what David explained to us last week. The more they consistently uh, would participate in the sacrifice, sacrificial system and offering, the less their heart was engaged. It's like this ongoing, repetitious thing where they had to put all this effort into it. They'd get tired. Their heart would get distanced. And eventually, God's like, hey, I, I don't want the bulls anymore and I don't want the goats, because that was never the point. Like, wait, well, okay, sure you don't, but here's the bulls and here's the goat. No, 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 you don't get it. That was never the point. The point was always your heart. The point was always connecting with my people. The point was always your heart, but the more you offer the bulls and the goats, the less I have of your heart. And you you seem to be confused about this. You seem to think that you can continue to work harder and earn your way. You seem to think that you can just behave a certain way and it's going to make me happy with you. That's not the point. Your heart is distanced from me and I want your heart. And so because you are incapable of doing this, I'm going to come down there and solve this myself. So he says, I'm going to do this myself. And that's what he explains in verse 7. He says, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will. This is a quote out of Psalm 40. If you remember Jesus in the garden on the last night of his life, he pleaded with God, God, if it's possible, would you just take this from me? But, not my will, but your will be done. And this is Jesus in complete submission to the will of the Father who desired the heart of his people and needed to make a sacrifice that would be once and for all, not repetitious, not yearly, not over and over again. And that sacrifice would come from Jesus. And so he says that. He says, verse 8. Where he said, above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, because the heart was distanced. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. That's covenant. So he's doing away, and actually the the word could be abolished there. He's using this word, very strong language. I've abolished the first covenant so that I can establish this second covenant, this new covenant of connecting God with his people. Verse 10, And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Jesus saying, this old way of you trying harder, this old way of you coming and, and working harder, this old way of you saying, yeah, I know I've struggled with this, but here's what I'm going to do, God. I promise I won't do this anymore, and I'm going to start doing this. I promise if you'll just do this for me, Lord, if you'll just forgive me, I promise I'll never do this again. That, that old system of your effort and your attempts... And your energy being put into this, you trying to do this on your own isn't working. It's done, I'm over it, so I'm coming to do this on my own. And it's as if we re- respond to him, yeah, Lord, I know you're doing this on your own, but, like, but I still have something I'm gonna bring to the, the altar. No, you don't get it, I'm done. Like all time, like forever. You, you don't do that, you, you can't bring anything that's good enough, it hasn't worked in the past, it's not gonna work in the future. But we're a people that are conditioned in every other arena of our lives to earn it to work harder, to try more. We are conditioned to seek out self-help books and seminars that will make us better people, and we put all of our effort into it, only to have this problem that doesn't ever seem to go away called sin. And he's saying here, enough is enough. I've got to take care of this because you cannot take care of it on your own. And I've struggled with this since I became a Christian in 2001. I have battled trying to work harder and accomplish more my entire Christian life. I have understood grace in my head, but I haven't always let it seep to my heart. And maybe you're like me. Maybe you struggle with this, too. I've got to do more, behave better. I've got to only participate in certain things. And if I'm disciplined enough, God will be happy with me. If I'm just disciplined enough, if I just try harder, I'm going to make him proud of me. I'm gonna make him happy enough with me where he'll want to forgive my sins. He'll want to bless me. He'll want to restore things. And he's saying here, no, he won't. Because all your effort will never work. Because the, the the tentacles, the cruel tentacles of the curse still have they're still wrapped around you. So what I love about this is he didn't just come with more tablets. He didn't just come and say, here's the new set of rules. No, he said, Hey, here's the new covenant. And I know you're still going to be incapable on your own of remembering this. And so I'm going to send you a helper. And the Bible teaches that when we become Christians, we have this helper that comes. The Holy Spirit that comes to live inside of us. And when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, according to John chapters 14, 15, and 16, one of the primary works the Holy Spirit does is when the enemy is screaming in your face, the Spirit's whispering in your ear. And he's bringing to the front of your mind and your heart Scripture. And so the author of Hebrews is going to remind us of that. We jump down uh, to verse 15, and he's going to say, hey, don't forget, when you're trying to live in this new system, when you realize I don't have to work as hard at this, I can just be known and be accepted, that the enemy's going to attack And when he does, don't forget your helper, verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. So he does that because we constantly forget. Martin Luther once said this, I always, every day I preach the gospel to myself, every single day, because every single day I forget it every day. And I need to continually be reminded of the grace of God in my life. So the Holy Spirit bears witness to us, verse 16, and he says this, this is the covenant that I will make with them in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts, not tablets. I will not put my laws on on, in a rule book. I'm going to write my laws, my word, on their heart through the work of my spirit and on their minds. And here's the difference between the two. You see, when it's written on tablets, it's about behavior. When it's written on your heart, it's about transformation. And the gospel message is not about behavior modification, though I think it's been hijacked in our country. To say, behave this way and do this and you can be a Christian. When the gospel screams out to us, no, this is what's been done for you, now live in response to it. Live a life of gratitude for the grace that's been so freely offered to you. It's a whole different way of living. And he says, this is what it means to have the word of God written on your hearts and in your minds. Verse 17, then he adds this. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. This was not a part of the old covenant. In fact, the old system was geared up to be a reminder. And now he's saying the new system, because Jesus sacrifices once and for all means, I'm not even going to remember your sins anymore. That's a beautiful promise, and he follows it up with what I think is one of the most beautiful verses in the entire New Testament, verse 18. He says this, where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. When you experience this kind of forgiveness, you realize, I don't have to earn it anymore. I don't have to work harder. I don't have to offer more and make more sacrifices. See, the problem for us, though, is we keep hauling our junk onto his altar, and he's like, hold on, the altar is closed up shop. We're done here. But yeah, yeah, I get it. But Lord, what about this? And I, Lord, I get it, like, but that was 2,000 years ago. I'm struggling with this sin like this morning. And don't you want me to offer this? He's like, no, the offering's taken care of. It's done in Christ. But, but Lord, let me, let me haul this up onto the offering and make this offering to you. And this, he's like, no, it's done. Like for all time. Because of what Jesus did when God looks at you, he no longer sees your need to offer more. He sees Jesus' complete offering. And that is why it transforms our life, the entire way that we see everything in life. No, it, no need any longer to try harder. Now, I'm going to share a, a tool that, with you that I use in the worldview class that I teach that has transformed the way that I see this. It's transformed the way that I look at my entire life. And it gets really personal, but it starts out where the story starts. Back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. See, in the first five days of creation, when God was creating things, he spoke it. And so he said, let it, and there was, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and it was good. God said, let there be land, and there was land, and it was good. He does this over and over again. He gets to the last day of creation, and he creates human beings, and you know what he does not do? He doesn't speak us into existence. Scriptures say that he forms us, very intimate, very detailed, very purposeful, very intentional. He forms us. And then the scriptures say what we just got done singing about, he breathes life into us. See, there's a doctrine formed around this called the image of God or the Imago Dei. And so the story always starts with that. It's the most important part of the story for you to understand that in the beginning, God created you. I like to say it this way: He created you on purpose for a purpose. Every single one of us, every human being you've ever met, was created in his image. God instilled in them his image. And that instantly gives them uh, purpose. That instantly gives them value. Meaning no matter what lie comes your way from the enemy and from this world, you know that when God created you, the scriptures say that he stitched you together in your mother's womb. And when he was perfectly putting you together, he was doing it with his purpose that goes way beyond anything else you ever experienced. We're going to get to this in a minute, but you need to remember, some of us really need this reminder that there will always be more grace in God than there is sin in man. Always. Always. Because he loves you from the very beginning. He loved you, but it's not where the story stays. See, sin enters the picture and it's the sin that we commit and the sin that is committed against us. And David boiled it down to two things that sin does last week. And I would agree with him and I would word it this way. Sin causes guilt, but guilt is circumstantial. You know, when I feel guilty for something, like when I do something at home and my wife in her uh, awesome non-picture elements says, you're a moron, and I'm like... <laughs> I'm a moron, right? And, and I realize that in the moment. I feel guilty for something. I'm like, I'm sorry. She's like, it's cool. I'm stuck with you, so here we go. And we get past it. And then the guilt subsides, right? The, like the guilt goes away. Guilt is situational and circ- circumstantial. But there's this other thing that sin does, whether it's the sin we commit or the sin that's committed against us. It puts inside of us shame. And you see, shame cuts a lot deeper than guilt because shame attacks your identity. Shame attacks the image that God instilled in you. Shame gets you to question whether or not you are valuable, whether or not you do have a purpose, whether or not he does love you and care for you. Shame comes in and it makes you unable to see the image of God in you because the sin has clouded you. It's caused so much pain and suffering in your life that you begin to think that that's who you really are and you don't want the world to see that. I can't let you see what I'm ashamed of. Because you're not going to actually see that God made me in his image. You're only going to see what I'm ashamed of because I only see what I'm ashamed of. I've been carrying the weight of my own shame for a long time, and I don't want you to see it. And so we do everything we can to keep people from seeing that, and so we push out our personality. Because our personality becomes a defense mechanism to stop people from seeing our shame that was put in there from sin to cloud us from seeing the image of God in us. See, friends, we push out our personality all the time. Let me get vulnerable with you. I grew up very, very poor. My family didn't have a lot. We moved around a lot. I went to a different elementary school every year of elementary school and into middle school. I didn't settle down until I got to high school. And I had friends that had all kinds of things that I never got to have. And the way that my family kept the home, I never let friends come into my home. And I was just ashamed of it. I was just ashamed of everything that had to do with it. I just felt so much shame. And I didn't want the world to see that shame because I thought for many years, that that's who I was. The poor, unimportant, unproductive kid. And so I pushed out in my personality this work ethic, and I began to work hard. And I wanted everybody to see that I work really hard, and I can achieve things. If I work as hard as I can, I'm going to achieve many, many things. Here's the thing. Work ethic's not bad, but it gets really dangerous when it's intended to stop people from seeing what I'm ashamed of. Let me give you another example. I'm, believe it or not, I know it's going to be hard for you guys to believe this, but I'm a pretty sarcastic guy. And Like I said, hard to believe, right? And I push sarcasm out because I'm ashamed of my weaknesses and the sin that I've carried in my life. So I found that people will stop focusing on what I'm not good at if I'm funny. And so sarcasm became a tool in my personality to keep people from seeing my shame my failures, the things that I just didn't want anyone to know about me, and I would push it out so that people couldn't see it. And for many years, even following Jesus, I've struggled with this. Things that I am ashamed of anyone ever knowing, because I think if you know this, you couldn't possibly love me. And God, if you knew this, you couldn't possibly love me, so I'm going to pretend to be a super Christian. I'll get the S on my chest, the cape in the wind. I'm going to be a super Christian, because God, if I can do that, you'll be happy with me, and you won't have to look at my shame. The problem with that is... Exhausting and it's painful because there's no freedom in it. It's year after year, day after day, going out on the deck and seeing yet another person, and I'm tired. But chapter 10, verse 18, reminds me that if I can understand this gospel message that penetrates through my personality, through what I'm ashamed of, and reconnects me with the one who created me, that there's freedom in that. I don't have to be ashamed. I don't have to hide things anymore. I can be vulnerable. I can be intimately connected to other people, and my shame doesn't have to define who I am. And there's no other message on planet Earth that does what the gospel message does because it says you don't have to earn this. You don't have to work harder for this. You simply recognize the grace that's been offered to you, and you respond with your life to that wonderful message of grace that's been extended to you. There's a lot of ways that the gospel message can influence your life, I'm going to share two ways that it's really impacted my life and set me free. One of, the number one thing is this. Grace offers us genuine intimacy with God and one another because now I'm not trying to earn God's love. I'm just responding to it. Like, God, I don't have to do more. I don't have to be more Christian and act more appropriate. I can just be who I am. And yes, you're going to shape me and you're going to mold me and you're going to mature me. I get that. But you love me like a really good dad. He just loves you, and he wants to watch you grow and mature. When you realize this, you have this intimate relationship with him. But, but now you can have this intimacy with other people because you know that your shame has been forgiven. So I don't mind if you see what I'm ashamed of because it doesn't define me anymore. It's not who I am. I can drop that weight and walk in the freedom of just being known. My wife and I were watching a documentary last night called Godspeed. And it's, it's a fascinating documentary about a guy that goes to Scotland and uh, He wants to share the good news with people, but he realizes, hey, they've got more to teach me. And he's there, and he's uh, with these people. And one of the guys is this giant, big uh, Scottish guy with a big red beard, and they're sitting down talking. And he begins to tell the story of Jesus, how Jesus healed people and raised people from the dead. And the guy's like, that is just not believable. Show me a map. He's like, a map? So he turns in the back of his Bible to this map, and the guy looks at it. He's like, the scale of the map. Okay, yeah. No, I believe it's true because if it wasn't, there's no way he would have got away with those lies because here in Scotland, everyone knows everything about me within this distance, and that's the same distance that Jesus traveled, meaning he had this intimate connection. He knew everybody. Everybody knew him. So when he's raising people from the dead, if he was lying, they would have said he's lying. And So this guy became a Christian because of map. And you thought they were useless in the back of your Bible, right? <laughs> this guy became a Christian because of that, because of intimacy because of being known, to be vulnerable. He said, like, the Lord just wants to know us and be connected to us. The second thing that it's done in my life is this. It's grace frees us from being defined by our failures. It frees us from being defined by our failures. Now, you probably agree with that statement as it's written on the screen, but do you really have that written on your heart? I mean, is that just simply a tablet that you're reading, or is it actually penetrated your heart? Do you really believe that you are not defined by your failures, because of the gospel of Jesus. One of my favorite things about being a minister here at New Hope, and uh, and yet probably the hardest part of working at this church, um, but I wanted to keep going, so don't shy away from this, is the prayer requests that come in. Because it's usually once a week, I'll be sitting by myself in the office, and I'll start reading through the details of the prayer request, and it breaks me. Because we have a very real enemy who has convinced a lot of you that you are your failure. He has told many men in this church that just because they lost their cool or because it's been too long since they've led spiritually that somehow they can't do that anymore. And Hebrews 10 is crying out, yes, you can. You're not defined by your failures. Grace means I have a new page, a clean page today, and I can start living this. We have so many women in this church that just believe that they're not good enough. They're not valuable. And the gospel would say, yes, you are. We have so many people in this church that have allowed the enemy to scream at them You couldn't possibly be loved by God. You couldn't possibly have a real purpose. We have people battling depression and anxiety and having even suicidal thoughts. And I'm just thinking, like, no, just just understand he loves you. Like, so deeply he loves you. Like, so desperately he loves you. And he wants you to know that. While the enemy is screaming at you, the spirit's whispering, no, no, you've got to understand he's just reminding you over and over again until finally he'll raise his voice and say, look, look, Satan, be done. This is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I'm well pleased, because of Jesus. Look, when God looks at you, I don't care what you've been through, if you're in Christ, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus, not your failure. And that pleases him deeply. The question we have to wrestle with is, will we let that please us? Let's pray.